the book writers resource podcast the book writers resource podcast Hello and welcome to another episode of the Book Writers Resource podcast with your host me Ian Pringle and Mandy Ward who will be along later. But first of all, let's hear from Stewards and Stupid and Rose in Row Your Boat. Stu Rosen is the author of Izzy and the Tumble Thunder. I started by asking Stu what his inspiration was for writing this book. Yeah, so I mean, Izzy and the Tumble Thunder, kind of eight to 13 year olds is the sweet spot, really. And, and the inspiration for me is that I, I've always been, I've worked in the media for like 25 years, used to, you know, used to be a newspaper journalist. So I've always written and always enjoyed writing when I was younger. Um, and I think largely what sort of, what what prompted me is in, in my complicated life, I've got five kids all together. Now my, um, my daughter uh, is 17 now. And when she was about seven or eight, I um, I used to love reading to her at bedtime. And the coolest thing I've ever done as a parent, shouldn't say this because there are other kids involved, right? Um, was I read her all of the Harry Potter books at bedtime. And I used to love doing the voices. You know, I did a terrible Hagrid and a Professor McGonagall that sounded like Mrs. Doubtfire and all the rest of it. <laughs> and it took me about three years. All up. So three years of doing, you know, half an hour a night or whatever. And I got to the end and I was like, I want to have a go at that. And, and the main thrust for me wasn't can I write a book and get it published and you know these great I've got this great idea etc I wanted to write a story that my Izzy would like um my my Izzy at the time was probably about 11 um and I thought you know what would be a really cool present for her 13th birthday was if I write her a book and on her 13th birthday I go there you go dad's written your book it's called Izzy and the Tumble Thunder um and, and that was kind of the, the genesis of it, really. Uh, and did you, because you're, you're sort of currently showing yourself off to be like the best dad ever. Um, and, I, and a part of me wants that not to be true because I'm like, oh, God, I don't know if I can manage to achieve. Did you actually manage to achieve to give her that book on her 13th birthday? Well, here's the thing. And when I do the school tour, so, you know, I always go around and I'm sort of talking to the kids and I'm telling this story. And, and the story goes that I actually gave her the book when she was 16 and a half. <laughs> so my, 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 my homework was three and a half years late uh, so i you know far from a model pupil but ah but you got there in the end and that's the most important part in it yeah and, and when i sat down to, when i sat down to write originally the, the book was going to be called is story the girl who invented the world so a really crap pun right and she would go back through the world and accidentally invent fire and the wheel and all this sort of stuff um, and very quickly in that process, I realized that that was just a crap idea. Um, so I, it, it became about a load of other stuff. And the, the more I kind of, you know, not, not brainstormed it, because I, I let my brain go left at the lights and over the roundabout when I'm coming up with ideas. Right. Uh, it, it just became Izzy and the Tumble Thunder almost out of nowhere. I, and one of the things I often get asked is, where does the phrase, where did the phrase Tumble Thunder come from? Um, and other than that's kind of the feeling that you get when she uses the tumble thunder because it's like a magical pocket watch. I honestly don't know. Um, I don't know if it was sort of, you know, just a great idea at two in the morning stroking my beard or if I drank too much wine or whatever, but this tumble thunder just came out of nowhere, really. 
It's got, I mean, I don't know if deep down in the crevices of your um, unconscious you'd absorbed a lot from the Harry Potter reading, but I suppose there's something in the, like the, the way those words roll off the tongue that feels like it might be something from Quidditch or it might be something that they discovered. It's got the, yeah, it's got the sense of that in there somewhere, hasn't it? But um, but you probably you probably couldn't have identified it to be exactly that. But it's something's fed in. I absolutely, and, and in a way that I've kind of seen um, like Star Wars uh, compared to Harry Potter before. You know, with like, like there are only so many ways you can tell a story, right? And only yeah. so many sort of different story arcs. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I'm a Star Wars baby. I was born in '77. Um, obviously, massive admirer of, of the Harry Potter stories. Um, and I think sometimes you can kind of go, well, there's a bit of my life in it. There's a bit of inspiration from that. There's a bit of, ins- so, you know, one, one of the main, um, Izzy lives in a clock shop uh, in a street off Carnaby Street in West London, which is owned by a guy called Professor Wigglesworth. Um, and originally Professor Wigglesworth was called Professor Oswald Thwaite, but I realized that even <laughs> I couldn't say it. So a nine and a 10 year old's got absolutely no hope. So he became Professor Wigglesworth, largely because it's just quite fun as yeah. well. You know, it's just quite a fun name. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think you do take little bits of inspiration from all over the place, you know. It's, I'm curious, you talked about the sort of your first idea for the book and uh, and these, the concept of sort of going back in time and, and reinventing inventions. Actually, I thought that was a fascinating concept. Is that something that's, that is still in the book or did you abandon that idea uh, with the title? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it became a, a real premise for the book. So the book is um, the Time Child Saga. We're kind of badging it. It's a, the first of a, a trilogy. Second book oh, is Izzy in the Time Shadow. And the first is Izzy in the Eschaton, um, which is uh, I've done 32 schools on the school tour. 5,000 kids, probably about 250 teachers. And there was only one teacher at a private school who was a professor of philosophy, which I think is cheating, who knew what the word eschaton meant. And it basically means like the divine end of the world. Ah. So I could have just called it Izzy in the end of the world, right? But I thought it's it's quite fun to have a, a word nobody's heard of. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, time travel is an absolute premise of the book. So Izzy... Um, unbeknownst to her is like a time child. They are born once every thousand years with the ability to hold sway over time and, you know, keep time on its rightful path, etc. But the only way they can do it is with the tumble thunder. So the tumble thunder is like this ancient relic that's been, that's existed for hundreds and you know, thousands of years and been protected because once every thousand years, it's kind of a chosen one type story. Once every 1000 years, the time child arrives with the ability to sort of keep, you know, hold sway over time. And at the start of the book, Izzy has these things that she calls seeing, so like visions of the future. Um, and she also, she has a terrible temper. So it's seen her get thrown out of schools and everything else. And she calls the temper fuzziness. Like, you know, when you get angry and it rises in your chest. Yeah. Um, so she kind of has to control it. So it's a bit of a coming of age story. Um, but the book starts with a seeing of a like a, a dead future, effectively, where you know the skies are black and there's black rain coming out of the clouds and all that sort of stuff. So um, Izzy's mission, not surprisingly, given that premise, is to save the world. You know, is to keep crucial things on the crucial things happen in history to keep time on it on its rightful path. So she goes back through um, history using the tumble thunder three times. 
um, on different quests to kind of make sure that things happen. And it's tied quite closely to things that actually happened in history. So um, the first time she goes, she meets a boy called Alec in some woods in some Scot in Scotland, um, who later in the story turns out to be Alexander Graham Bell. And she kind of, she shows him, because she, she lands in the past with, with this boy called Alec and, you know, she's lost and needs to get home and all the rest of it. And she's like, well, if you've not got a telephone, I just need to ring, ring my mom. You know, what's a telephone kind of conversation? And anyway, she ends up showing him that, you know, two cans with a piece of string and that becomes the precursor to the phone. Um, and this, on the second thing through through uh, history, she meets a young girl called Drina uh, and ends up in London. Drina's got a dog called Dash and she ends up saving Drina's life when she's almost run over by a horse and carriage. And Drina was Queen Victoria. Uh -huh. Queen Victoria, when she was a toddler, actually, so slightly younger than the, the bit I've done in the book, um, she was actually almost killed by a horse and carriage, but a policeman saved her life. Oh, wow. Um, so I didn't know that until I was doing my research. Yeah. And I was like, right, brilliant. I'll have that as a bit of a fact. And then the third quest she has to go on is like into World War II. Uh, and she meets Winston Churchill. And there's a, there's a kind of a way that the, the, the present and the past are tied together is that there's a picture of Winston Churchill on the clock shop in the present. And, you know, the story goes that Winston Churchill bought a, a pocket watch from the shop during the Second World War. Um, and, and basically, Izzy almost facilitates him buying this clock, but it's got an engraving on it, which is like, for the many go the few. Ah. And so she kind of has to, and apparently it is a real story that Winston Churchill wasn't sure about becoming prime minister and had real second thoughts because of the responsibility and mm. what happened previously and all that sort of thing. So she kind of has to persuade him to become prime minister um, with the engraving on the pocket. Wow. So the, the, the yeah. you know, very close ties to actual history, albeit, you know, with a bit of writer's license. And it sounds, I've been talking to, all sorts of people that have written in all sorts of different ways and and it's interesting listening to you because I think some of the people I've spoken to previously have written their books maybe more biographically and have sort of gone oh here's all the stories from my life I chuck them down and put them together and see what happens whereas I'm hearing more with you and correct me if I'm wrong but there's something in your probably as a journalist your understanding of story structures anyway but then but your you going at it from that like oh, actually if i pinpoint this into some real past that i can dive into and research and then and then you're discovering the stories from that is that sort of how your process is working a, a little bit because what i want to do is i want to build a magical world but in the real world so izzy lives um in a flat above a clock shop at number 12 fubert's place which is a real street just off carnaby street right um and you know she she hates the tube because she loves walking. So, you know, the there's mentions of the Palladium and Regent Street and, and Carnaby Street. So it's kind of rooted in real life. It's rooted in real places. Stonehenge plays a big part because that's enormous for the Temporati, which are like the secret guilds that look after the, the Tumble Thunder. Um, so it's, it's, all it's all based within real life. And actually quite a lot of the stuff I had to take out because I'd almost like overwritten. So... Alexander Graham Bell, when he was younger, used to do loads of stuff for like using his voice to like do echoes. And he was he was huge into like audio waves and all that. And 
but I'd made it too slow and too complicated. So I had to take a load of stuff out. Do you find that, yourself getting very, very interested, I suppose, in all the discoveries you're making and, and wanting to report on those to a degree, I guess? Yeah, and, and that's it. And, and, and one of the things I wanted to do with, with the Easy Stories, I wanted it to be um, really, re she's a really relatable hero. So when we meet her, she's at a new school because she's been thrown out of loads of schools because she loses her temper. Bad things happen when she loses her temper, basically, like, She's got all the, like, the power to stop time and doesn't even realise. Um, and, and she gets things wrong and, you know, she doesn't like to make friends and she's a bit of a loner. And it, it, it's a story like that, really. It's a bit of a rite of passage story in a way. And that gives when, her the release, I guess, in, in the same way, you know, Luke Skywalker, um, yeah. you know, Harry Potter, that, 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 that kind of loss of, I don't know if she loses her parents, but certainly... She's in a situation that's a little bit out of control. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's a reason yeah. to become the rebellion or start the rebellion in some ways. Yeah, she, she's got a drive, and the very simple story arc is that she, her dad has gone missing three years ago at Stonehenge. On the fam, you know, the family takes a trip every Midsummer's Day to Stonehenge to, you know, see the solstice because it's what Izzy doesn't realise it's kind of huge for the family. Um, and dad goes missing three years ago. So when we meet her, her dad is missing um everybody believes that you know tells her that dad's dead and she doesn't believe it she you know so the very simple story arc is a young girl right of passage finding her dad yeah and everything else is like you know being chased through time by an assassin called the time shadow who wants to kill her turns out he's killed the other time children that you know existed because they they're born at once every thousand years um so there's lots of sort of dark stuff about it mm. Um, but the very simple premise is kind of a young girl finding herself and, and being desperate to find her dad. Brilliant. And you've and you've got these three, the whole, all three stories are are written now, and uh, and you're gonna are you kind of in the process of releasing them? Where, where are you at with that? I, I'm sort of halfway through, so not quite all written. So the first one is out. It's been out since November the first last year, and we're kind of on a, a bit of a PR tour with it, really. Uh, doing schools, so as I say, done thirty-two schools. More lined up between now and Christmas. Are you getting um, some feedback from young young readers as well along yeah, the way? The really positive thing is everybody who's read it has really enjoyed it um, because I wanted to write it in a real. Um, I wanted it to be exciting and a bit of a page turn and breathless, you know. So one of those books that you kind of you kind of can't put down. Mm. Um, and, and it's one of the things that uh, David helped me with in the editing process from the book writers resource, just to sort of help me enable that pace as much as anything else without losing the essence of the story. Mm -hmm. And the feedback's been brilliant. I've actually signed um, an 18 month development deal with a company called Pendragon, who are now, we're now in the process of pulling together a production Bible. Um, I'm, I've yet to put pen to paper on a screenplay, but I have the kind of, what you might call the beats of a screenplay. Wow. Which, which is really exciting because, first of all, because that might be the step to it becoming a film, maybe. Mm -hmm. Also, I've never done a screenplay. So for me, that's just a great challenge. So it's really exciting. And then at the same time, I've got a 5,000 word outline for Izzy in the Time Shadow. Um, haven't written down anything really on the third book other than that I know how it ends. I know the, the very end of the trilogy um, and once we get there, you'll either, you'll either love it or kids will hate me forever. There'll be no in between. Okay. So that's kind of, yeah. yeah. Um, you sound like someone that's, I don't know, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty competent in, in the world of writing. And when you picked up a pen or started to do this, it wasn't like the first time you'd kind of delved into that world. Um, but I'm, so I'm curious, really, what, 
what are the what have been the challenges for you more than anything else what are what are the things that you found most difficult have there been moments where you've gone oh god not sure if i can carry on with this and what and what were they what are those big obstacles well i i mean you're right and i i feel quite comfortable writing but i think there are two two bits to do, to putting a book together one is can you write the other one is can you storytell and the, the more I've got into it, I think you can cut. Some people can do both brilliantly. Some people are better at one than the other. D- define um, writing and storytelling for me just briefly uh, in terms of what you mean. I, I think it's that whole thing of can you write in such a style that is um, very easy to read, flows very well, can can either be smart or funny or slow, you know, and you can take pace up and down and all that sort of stuff. The art of storytelling is far greater you know it involves that whole story you know you think about um lord of the rings which is my favorite book the writing in there is quite hard work sometimes because mm. as we would find it now because it's quite old-fashioned in a way yeah um, yet the storytelling is like off the scale you know there are new there are worlds and parallel narratives and things that hook up into everything else um and that's the bit that i i find the hardest um and i actually you know so if you take jk rowling for example clearly a brilliant writer but I actually think she's a better storyteller than a writer because her storytelling is, you know, the, just the level of, of the worlds that she creates and the imagination that's needed. Um, so it's, it's very weird when you start spotting that among people, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's interesting. I, it, uh, I can understand what you're saying, but the, yeah, I, I wonder how, I suppose it's just through the process and trying hard or mm-hmm. something to do with your own... The, the storytelling, I suppose, is having a an understanding that it will come back round that you'll that you'll be able to have control over yeah. over this, and you'll and you'll get to those two parallels will meet somewhere, and it will happen. Yeah. And kind of having faith in that, I suppose, it sounds like a confidence thing more than anything else. The storytelling, I think it is, but it's also the the way that you approach writing. And when I certainly when I first sat down to write Izzy in the Tumble Thunder. The first chapter was massively overly long because I I, lo- I really enjoyed writing it and, I, and it was just flowing out of my fingers. Um, but the storytelling was was too eked out. So I remember when I when I eventually finished for the first time and then you know went back through it, the first seven chapters felt too slow. I really enjoyed the middle, thought it was pacey. I enjoyed the end, although we you know with with help of the book writers resource, kind of made the end a bit more impactful and a bit more emotional. But the start was quite slow and I actually took the first seven chapters and edited them down into three and deleted about 5,000 words in the process, um, but didn't lose any of the main characters, didn't really lose the gist of the story, took some, you know, guff out, frankly, just there was just too much padding around it. But that's what, you know, the, the, the writer that I was right at the start of Izzy and the Tumble Thunder is very different to, to the one at the end. And I think if you've, when you're writing for the first time around a book, you kind of go, yeah, I, I can feel myself getting better and everything else. And I, I think one of the biggest challenges for me was probably just finding time, you know. So I used to have uh, jobs at the BBC and BBC Sport and BBC Children's and now run my own media company. Um, so just finding the time to sit down, have the clarity of thought around story arcs. And as you can see, I'm, you know, my wall is full of post-it notes where I'm kind of bringing, you know, it's I, I need to see things. Yeah. And one of the things that I really struggle with around just 
writing is I often end up with like three different word documents open because I need to try and visualize it. And I, I've heard a lot of writers are very similar. Yes. Uh, you know, because you, you kind of, and you'll see on here, so all the different um, post-it notes are all different colored. So because um, the green ones are Izzy and the yellow ones are, you know, her nan, and then there's one for the time shadow. So I, I need to be able to follow everybody's story individually as well as then weave them all together. And what I find, what one of the great things I find about just doing quite a comprehensive story, you know, a book plan. So you go every chapter has got this is if you've got them all on post-it notes, you can move the order around. Yes. Yeah. And it just helps with the flow of the narrative. Um, so that's what been one of the big, but been one of the big challenges, but one of the things I've enjoyed the most. And I bet you've because, been, you've got those different colored post-it notes and you've got those characters. I imagine you're beginning to feel more closer and closer to all of those characters. It, I, it must be like a, every time you move one, there's you you know what the knock-on effect is going to be to the others and that just becomes ever more fascinating but also ever more complicated i would think yeah i i think it really is com and, and it's one of the reasons that i probably cheat and write kids books you know i could never write one of these wonderfully complicated stephen king-esque novels or something where there's like four or five characters in loads of different locations for me that you know the story is driven by izzy yeah um there are other characters and, and you know, and there is the, a bit of their point of view stuff in it. But I, I don't think I, I don't think I'm smart enough to be able to do that kind of multifaceted novel of, you know, where you get to the last 50 pages and it all just comes crashing yes. together. <laughs> uh, Cause that just blows my brain. No. And I, you know, I'd love to be able to have the go at it one, to have a go at it one day maybe, but um, yeah, it, it's, it's a real challenge. And that's one of the things I like most about it, but it's, Writing is also the most fun thing I've ever done. You know, brilliant, and it sounds like there's something that you're getting better and better at as you as you go along. If there was, I guess, just sort of finishing this up a little bit now, um, it, it's almost surprising listening to, to to someone like yourself that that you've um, seeked help, seeked, seeked. Is that the appropriate? Oh. So, sought, <laughs> sought, yeah, seeked. Yeah. We're seeked, um, sought sort support um from external organizations like um the book writers resource yeah. when you are a skilled writer um and as you say there's things that you that you know you want to get better at. how does that help and what would be your advice to other people around that um i i think and i say this when i go around schools you know is that you no, nobody can ever produce a, the perfect piece uh and i i know an, an author that used to, that used to work for me at bbc sport actually and now lives in canada and has got like 35 books out um, you never sit down and write the finished finished piece. And I think the, the great thing about working like with the book writers resource was, yes, there was a sense of um, just external point of view on what you're doing. And somebody who's frankly just a bit more objective about it, because I think what happens is you become so passionate about your own passion project that you become blind to it. Uh, and I think sometimes just having somebody who's impassionate and can go, well, I don't understand that bit. And I'm not sure that that bit works. And by the way, I, I, I kind of see what you were messing about at or having a go at there, but it doesn't work. And I think that that's having the, you know, the ability to have that like, objectivity, take the real feedback. Cause I think that's one of the hardest things about being a writer is you get a lot of feedback, you know, and editors at some stage might go, I don't really like that. And maybe you should think about doing this or frankly, something just doesn't work. Um, 
but but that's the key to it, I think, is um, I, I'm not a massive fan of the, the whole idea of beta readers because I think that's just, it's a load of people with opinions and then it kind of gets a bit too messy sometimes. But having people who really understand editing and storytelling is absolutely crucial to the process for me. So actually an expert opinion rather than just a, a, a vagary of a kind of, yeah, like I like yeah. it, I don't like it. Well, you know, that doesn't really tell you very much, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Um, So, and for anybody wishing to um, purchase uh, any of these books and find anything more about your books, where, where do they go, Stu? Where can they find out more um, about you? Well, I, I can do them a deal because um, we've made the first three chapters available for free on our website, which is tumblethunder.com. So that's kind of like my my lost leader, if you like. So people can just go there and check it out. Or it is available on Amazon now at nine ninety nine. We've sold, you know, we're coming up for a thousand sales, uh, gradually making a bit more, bit of a splash on it. And you can also sort of find it on all of the social channels as well. So it's it's round and about everywhere. Brilliant. And can people get it hard, um, you know, paperback and digital formats? Yeah, it's yeah. A, the the um, the ebooks available, the Kindle versions available uh, through Amazon as well as the paperback. I just wondered, you know, Stu's got lots of experience. It was really interesting talking to him, learning about that experience. And, I was, and a lot of the time, it's like, okay, so what's the relationship between him and the book writers' resource? How's that gone? How's that worked out? It sounds like he's got a great book. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What's it been like for you working with him? Oh, it's been great. He's a joy to work with. A because he's I'm obviously really well connected. So if I when I look back, um first met Stu on LinkedIn back in May twenty one and he just put a post out there saying, Would anybody like to read my book? And I was like, Yeah, I'd love to read your book. Um and then I came became had a conversation for about an hour and I put a proposal forward. Um, told me that he'd got, you know, three of three of the series. Straight away, I took to the book, even though I was, you know, 50 plus at the time. I, it took me straight back to being a 12-year-old reading, you know, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It's got that kind of magnetic read, if you like. Um, and although it's for that age range, I think there's a lot of people that would enjoy that story and want to know what happens next and would want to know what happened at the end. Very on the line of Harry Potter, I guess, really. Um, so yeah, we I put a proposal together. At this point, I'd said to David, "Oh, by the way, I'm having a chat with this guy as ex BBC," and I started to get all excited, obviously, because I really liked the book, look of the book. And we'd been going about a year by that point. And then Stu came back and said, "Yeah, let's do it." And that's where we started the journey. So at that point, then it was you know I'd done a, a first pass edit, if you like, because that's how David and I worked together. David's got all the skills of a professional editor. He's got his degree he really knows what he's doing when it comes to making sure a manuscript reads well and my role is to to read it as a, a first reader if you like to give an opinion and is this story any good is it is it something that holds the reader's attention so I read it as a layperson would really um, and then we started the journey of you know making the book what it is today um, it's been a really interesting experience and we ended up going up to Manchester for Stu's book launch at um, Media Cent, Media City in Manchester, which was all really exciting. And yeah, it's been a re really wonderful journey. Of course, now Stu talks about the fact he's write, writing with or working with Pendragon. So hopefully, you know, Stu is the first book we took on as a publisher. We set up Wellbone Publishing because we knew instantly that it's a, a really good book. Um, and yeah, we helped him set up a website. Um, 
you know, the idea of giving out first three chapters was an idea that we came up with. Um, yeah, so it's been a really, really exciting experience. It's, it's a joy to work with. Yeah, um, and it was a joy to talk to, actually. Yeah. Um, so what's the, I guess, what's the sort of the, the main thing that you've been doing on that book then? It, it, it sounds like it's more to do with the editing yeah. and the kind of the end processes rather than you're not guiding someone, you're not, you're not really needing to hold his hand at the very beginning of that. Right from the word go, I think it was a conversation about giving him confidence to carry on the journey and really having a, a vision of where he wanted to get to. What we do as a team is we wrap ourselves around the author and, and make sure that we focus our attention on where they need it most. Mm. Now, Stu is a good writer, but there were some suggestions that I made in terms of, you know, little things like towards the end of the book, there was the relationship between Izzy and her dad. And I said, there needs to be some more emotion in there because, you know, I put myself in, in the shoes of Izzy where, without giving the story away, she was missing her dad badly. And I thought I'd react to, you know, Izzy would react a little bit differently to how Stu had written it. So mm. putting some more emotion into the book um, at that stage. And then really over to David then to do his work as a, as a developmental edit to make sure that the book flows, to make sure that the there's continuity, to make sure it doesn't lose the reader. And then once Stu signs off the final draft, it goes to typeset then. So then it was making sure that the book is the right size, the cover is right for the audience that are, are going to want to buy it for their children or children themselves wanting to buy it, making sure that the layout you know, the readability, the right space, the right font, making sure that it is, you know, of the genre for the age range that the book is being sold to. Then having conversations with Stu then about the education process. So why buy your own ISBN rather than the one from Amazon? What are the pitfalls of, you know, doing either and or? What, what it means once the ISBN is put and on the what, back of the... What, what might be the pitfalls of buying your own <laughs> ISBN rather than from Amazon or or, yeah. or individually? Well, there's... there's um, I mean, it's a cheap way to get your book put out there if you use Amazon's ISBN, but you can't really then take it off Amazon and sell it anywhere else because it's their ISBN, whereas if you've got your own ISBN... You can buy it through Nielsen's. You own that, then you can take that book and you can print it anywhere. You can sell it anywhere. It's it's totally your own. And then does that put know, it in libraries as well and things like that? Or? So yeah, anybody who's written a book, it doesn't it doesn't matter if you haven't got an ISBN. But if you have an ISBN, it identifies your book on the bookshelf for sale with retailers and shops, etc. Mm. Then. You can go on to, it's quite a tricky process, really, mm. if you don't understand it. So you buy the ISBN. In the UK, you buy them from Nielsen's. I think it's something like 90 quid for one or 160 for 10. Once you've got your ISBN on the back of the book, then you have to go into something called Nielsen's Editor, which is separate. You have to register your book. You have to load the back cover. You have to give some details. You have to put it in the right category. Um, as you do in Amazon, it's quite tricky. And then what happens is once it's registered and they accept that, you will then, a few weeks later, you'll get notified from the British Library, hey, we've got your book registered, we would like six copies, please, because there are six um, different places of the British Library across the UK. Oh, well, I never knew that. So, Because yeah. I, know, I know I'd heard that, you know, you hear this thing about the British Library being, sure. having one copy of every book yes. that's ever been, yeah, been yeah. written. Yeah. Um, but only then if it's had the 
the ISBN is the ISBN. So there might be books on Amazon that are not in the British Library if they've not been well, if through that process. Well, if people don't know what to do with the ISBN, then no. If you don't no. know, I mean, you can have the ISBN on there, but until you edit, until you register it and notify the British Library, it's, they're not going to know about it. And, right. and the other thing that then, I mean, inc- coincidentally, I Googled this, what's the oldest book in the British Library? Right. And it was a book from something like 400 from Lindisfarne about one of the original kings. And it was just like from 400. I can't wow. remember the exact, you know. Where did the king go to get his ISBN on? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he didn't need like, one. It was just like one. <laughs> but where, on, I mean, it does make you wonder where and how on earth do they hold all of these books? Yeah. It'd be, be absolutely fantastic to take a trip to the British Library and walk around with your gloves on and look at some of these books. It would just be, I mean, it sounds really boring, but I would find that so interesting. I bet they've you know, the got history. those those special things that, the, you know, like big uh, bookshelves that go in and out, They, um, you know, where they <laughs> yeah, wind yeah, them in yeah. and out or, yeah, you know, yeah. just incredibly well stored, yeah. packed together and then yeah. open up. Yeah. And the, the other thing as well that I found out, and it, again, it's all a learning experience, there's something called public lending rights. So because your book's in the British Library, they do have a small pot of money. So if somebody's book really takes off, there is a pot of money. So if your book gets lent out, you could end up earning a bit of money from the British Library from something called public lending rights, which is also free. So if anybody that wants to know more, you can go onto the British Library's website and you can find all this information out. It's really interesting. Brilliant. That's Mm. a really good little tidbit that's just come out of um, that. that, You know, that's a little bit of advice that you were giving to Stu. Yeah. Um, Really useful advice for us listening to this, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Great. It's going right from first word all the way through to book on the bookshelf. And, And that's what David and I set the business up for really because what we recognized and I learned this from writing my own first book 20 years ago you know there's there's lots of things to learn about putting a book together but there's nobody out there that's doing a once not many people out there doing a one-stop shop approach to self-publishing there are vanity publishers out there I mean I suppose in some respects people might say that we're a vanity publisher but you know not only do we help you write your book help you get it turned into a book we help you with the marketing we help you with the pricing we help you understand your ideal avatar so there's a whole range of stuff that goes into producing a book um and, and of course quite often what you see is somebody say well, i've written a book you see them announce it on linkedin you think well so what mm-hmm. who's going to buy that so our role as the book writer's resource is not just to print your book and deliver a you know 10 or 100 of them to your doorstep we will help you understand that you've got a product that needs to be marketed and sold and giving advice and again this is the reason why our book the author's journey is taking so long because we're going to have to take our own advice we've been so busy helping other people with their books we've now got to turn inwards and focus on talking about our own book and getting our own book out there yeah absolutely and that well that's really interesting isn't it you know from from even this little bit of information about isbns you know you can write your book if you want to, but nobody knows about it until you start to tell them about it. Mm-hmm. Um, great. Um, yeah. And if people want to hear a little bit more from the Book Rise resource, all the information that, to get hold of them is on the show notes of this podcast. So they can get in touch with you there, sure. Mandy. Great. But via DM on LinkedIn mostly, that's how right. a lot of people get in touch because that's mostly where we do our marketing, to be fair. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that one last question I was going to ask you about that, which had just stuck in my mind, really. Um, you talked about, you know, going through the book and just noticing that, that you wanted, you you felt like you wanted a bit more emotion from sure. the relationship between the, the, the daughter and the father. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I guess any tips on how people might add a little bit of more emotion to their characters or relationships in their books as they go through? Um, I use something called, um, in, in terms of connecting characters and making sure that everything aligns, um, making sure that you're not introducing a character that just pops in that can jar the reader. I've seen that happen in a book. So um, I've been listening to Lee Childs on BBC Maestro and he's doing a set of lessons on how to write. And he talks about, you know, write how you feel, not write what you know. He, he thinks that's really bad advice. Mm. And actually, you know, if you're a subject matter expert, yes, write about what you know. But if you're writing a character, essentially you're writing for the reader and you've got to think about yourself as the reader. You know what a good book looks like. You know what a bad look, book looks like or reads like. You talk about your own feelings from experience, really, when it's character building. So... The way I do it, I use a clock face. Uh, you've got 12, 12 numbers on a clock face, and I put a character on each of those numbers with a the plot in the middle, and I, I make sure that each of those characters is connected to the plot in the middle somehow or to each other. It doesn't have to be 12 characters, but it's making sure then that each of those characters in the book, the story that you're telling, are connected in some way to the plot one way or the other. Mm. So it might be that they're a cousin of, you know, Jim Bob who sits on you know, number nine, but actually it relates to the character number nine and then it relates to the plot of the story somehow, if that makes sense. Makes complete sense. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, actually the, the way that we experience and understand emotion is often through the connection with, is often through relational emotion, isn't it? So you're using yeah. relationships and making sure you're you're clear on why those relationships exist yeah. and that helps the, the yeah. emotion come out. Yeah, yeah. and you, you write from your own experience. So at the moment I'm writing my own novel called 13 Boxes and there's a character in that um, and he's a radio presenter and... Um, he can only go out once a night, once a week to get lagging drunk if he wants to because he works every morning really early. Mm. And it's based on, a, you know, I'm loosely basing it on people I've met at BBC Radio Leicester. <laughs> they, may, they may say, well, I'm not like that. But um, <laughs> so long story short, the character there is based on somebody that I know. Um, this character goes into a curry house with his mates on a Saturday night. His mates know what he's like. He drinks too much, falls asleep in his curry. The staff in the restaurant know what he's like. So they wipe his face, cover him in a blanket, pull a screen around so the customers don't see him, then he sleep it off, you know. So what happens is there's, there's people behind talking. So he picks up on this conversation, even though he's fast asleep. And this is based on um, something that happened when I was younger, working in a bar of a, a, a guy I used to work with. That actually happened to him. And the girls that I worked with, they paid the bill wiped his face and went home <laughs> so you're talking from experience yeah. you're talking from your own, own experience yeah great well that answers, hopefully that answers your question i think that's answered lots of questions mandy yeah, yeah thanks so it's been really nice chatting to you about about um Stu's book yeah um and as i said before all the information people need is going to be in the show notes if sure. they want to find out anything about that great yeah. thank you um, we'll leave it there thank you The Book Writers Resource podcast features advice from Mandy Ward and David Hambling. If you would like to hear more from them, visit www.tbwr.co.uk or email info at tbwr.co.uk. This was a Listening Shelf production presented by Ian Pringle.